0: We'll hear argument first this morning in Number 99-1953, the District of Columbia versus Tri-County Industries. Uh, Mr. Reichel.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the principal issue here today is fundamental to the functioning of our civil jury system, but it is one which the courts of appeals have disagreed about for decades. That issue is whether a trial court, which sets aside a jury verdict in a civil case as against the weight of the evidence, is entitled to very substantial deference by an appellate court. We submit that the trial court is entitled to such substantial deference. Indeed, we submit that the standard is whether any reasonable judge could have concluded that The verdict was against the weight of the great weight of the evidence. We submit that the D.C. Circuit below applied a strict scrutiny standard, which boils down in practice to whether there was sufficient evidence for the question to go to the jury. We submit that this was error. It's inconsistent with what
0: a trial court jo- does. I thought that the, the Court of Appeals used the expression of more searching inquiry than had the motion been denied. I didn't realize they used the term strict scrutiny. I'm sorry. More searching
1: inquiry is, is the phrase that they do
0: use. And they use the term more searching inquiry, as I understand, to compare it with the sort of inquiry where the district court has denied the motion for a new trial. Certainly it's comparing it with something.
1: Yes, and there are also other distinctions about the sort of error that's involved, but
0: yes. uh, Is it your position that it is exactly the same inquiry in the Court of Appeals whether a district court grants a motion for a new trial or denies it? Yes, Your Honor, it is.
1: Our position is can any rational judge have made that decision?
0: It seems somehow counterintuitive, though I realize that doesn't make it wrong. Uh, that where a district where where the trial judge, in effect, is giving effect to the the jury's verdict, uh, he should it, he shouldn't get a more lenient standard of view than when, when he disapproves it or sets it aside.
1: I don't think, on analysis, it is. This is ultimately rooted in the perspective, the unique perspective a trial court has. On the evidence, as Justice Black said in Cone versus West Virginia Pulp and Paper, when a trial court is ruling on a motion uh, to set aside a trial, uh, to, to order a new trial, he has a fresh perspective on the evidence. He has just seen it go in. He's also got a fresh perspective on the effect, the impact of the evidence on the jury.
0: But that's true whether he denies the motion or grants it.
1: That's true. It's true in either case. But the trial judge is there. The trial judge sees what happened. And for that reason, the trial judge and the trial judge alone can actually engage in weighing the evidence.
2: When, when you say what this is ultimately rooted in, it's, um, I mean, whatever decision we come out with has to be ultimately rooted in the Seventh Amendment, I assume. Yes, sure. And the Seventh Amendment certainly has quite different application <clears throat> when you're talking about a trial judge who has accepted the jury's verdict. Uh, and, on the other hand, a trial judge who has rejected the jury verdict, in effect, overridden it and said we have to have a new trial. I don't know why uh, why the same standard of review has to apply to both of those situations when the Seventh Amendment treats them differently.
1: Well, the there is one minor difference, and that is this, the court has to look to whether the trial court applied the proper standard. That is, when he sets aside a verdict as contrary to the weight of the evidence, the question is, can a rational judge have made that decision? That is, was it clearly contrary to the weight of the evidence.
3: Sometimes the evidence would be evidence that juries have a particular ability to evaluate or at least the power is given to them, say, witness, demeanor. Uh, There could be other cases in which uh, the, the matter is not particularly one that's suited to a jury. I mean, it turns, it gives a new trial because of, something to do with a document and its admissibility or something like that uh, would you at least say that where it's a matter that the juries are entrusted with the decision a trial judge should be particularly careful of granting a new trial contrary to the jury i mean I'm, what i'm wondering at is if it, what i'm wondering about is if it perhaps is the same standard but in applying that same standard you should pay particular attention when you overturn a jury verdict because, Judge, the jury has responsibilities to decide things that you don't have.
1: That's true, but the trial judge has a much better take on the, both the force of the evidence And the impact on the jury... No, if if that's true, would
3: you be satisfied with that result? Suppose this court said, well, in a sense, it's the same standard. But what searching inquiry means is it means, after all, here you are upholding the jury, not going against the jury. And if you were going against the jury, there are many reasons why you should be very careful. Does that satisfy you?
1: I think that's implicit in the great weight of the evidence part of the test. The rational judge has to be able to say that this was against the great weight of the evidence. Oh, then
3: are we arguing about anything other than just which is often true in such cases? Words.
1: I think the words have had real consequences in appellate review. I think if one looks to... What the D.C. Circuit and other circuits who followed the Lind decision actually do is it boils down to was there evidence to support the jury verdict. If there was, they say that it was an abuse of discretion for the court to set it aside. But it's Hornbook Law that a court can set aside a jury verdict, even if there's substantial evidence to support it, if the court makes an independent determination without drawing inferences for the verdict winner, an independent determination that it's contrary to the great weight of the evidence. You
2: Do you think that a jury verdict can be against the great weight of the evidence when the only thing that the judge disagrees with, the trial judge, is the jury's evaluation of credibility? There are... And that possibly be against the great weight of the evidence? There are a number
1: my answer if, I, is yes I, I, and let me my tell answer you, well, is I ask yes, the question because be.
2: if not if not then the court of appeals is fully uh, able to evaluate the issue uh, as uh, as effectively as the as the trial judges there are justice Scalia, a
1: range of different kinds of credibility determinations one might be what what someone might call eyeball credibility you look at a person testifying and are they lying are they sweating are they nervous all of that. The other kind of credibility finding is is what does what they're saying make sense? And to the extent that there's a credibility determination involved here, the question went to the credibility of the financial expert because the financial expert, uh, Dr. Morse, based his pr- financial projections on... On data that wasn't rooted in and was contrary to what the industry expert Dorenzo said.
2: Well, that, that's a queer. That, that's, that's a queer description of credibility. I mean, on, on that basis, any, any facts that don't make sense are. are, are, are Incredible. Yeah, I, I suppose that's right, but I wouldn't consider that a credibility determination. I'd consider that a determination of whether there was substantial evidence on the record. If, if there's something on the record that is utterly incoherent and makes no sense, that's not evidence. It's not adequate evidence, and a court of appeals can evaluate that. I, I thought that when we're talking about credibility, we're talking about the eyeballing the witnesses. I, tell, I don't believe this fellow. He's shifty-eyed or whatever.
1: If we're talking about what I would call eyeball credibility, the courts are in dis- the circuits are in disagreement as to whether the the, the trial judge can reevaluate that independently Mr. some Mr. of them Mr. Say, no. i
4: i wasn't of the view that that this terms this power relates only to the credibility of witnesses i thought the judges exercise the determination to overturn a jury verdict based on uh, maybe a whole range of things that occur at trial including A judge might feel, I gave instructions that would pass muster with the Court of Appeals, so they're reversal proof, but the jury didn't understand a damn word I was saying. Or the judge might say, I excluded certain evidence that was favorable to the defendant. That, too, could survive appellate review, but on thinking it over, I should have admitted the evidence, and either way, the Court of Appeals wouldn't touch me. Those kinds of considerations don't go to credibility of witnesses. That's true. But it's a sense that the judge has that something went wrong at this trial.
1: That's true. And the judge here made two kinds of findings. One, he made a finding that he excluded evidence he should not have and disabled the jury in performing its function. And the most important evidence that he excluded was the October 15th invitation to be heard. The harm here was that Tri-County Industries said they were harmed because they hadn't been heard, but then they turn around and spurn an invitation to be heard, and the judge excluded that evidence, and he did so in part because of his ruling that all these issues had been resolved earlier. And then when he thought about it, he said that wasn't, that isn't right, and it probably confused the jury.
2: Well, but th- those things, you, you, my, my point maybe wasn't clear. I'm not saying that those, that that Eyeball credibility is the only thing that the district judge can take into account. Of course you can take into account these other things. But these other things are valuable by the Court of Appeals just as readily as they're valuable uh, evaluable by the trial judge. The Court of Appeals can say, well, this stuff was excluded. It could have been let in, and, and if it had been let in, it would be different. The, uh, this instruction to the jury was confusing. You can tell that from the cold record. And if that's so, I don't know why you should give any special deference to the, to the trial. Well, the,
1: the Court of Appeals can't see the witnesses, and it can't see the jury, and it can't tell what impact a particular witness might have on the jury. The key witness here for purposes of future earnings was Dr. Morse. Dr. Morse, who came on as a PhD and said, I've read a ton of things and I'm an expert in this field and I can do all these mathematical things. But when he was cross-examined, said, yes, but I based all of my industry stuff on all my, all my prices on the act, on the apex report by Dorenzo. And what Dorenzo's report said was that prices were being driven down so that they barely covered costs.
5: Doesn't that go to the credibility of the expert? Whether what he relies on uh, is worthy of credence by the fact finder?
1: It goes to the probative force, I think, of his testimony. How much
5: weight you should give the testimony, which that's I thought, correct and uh, that is a is, form this, of credibility.
1: That's right, Justice O'Connor, and that's precisely what the trial court can weigh and what an appellate well, court but cannot that's weigh. that's
5: precisely what the jury, the fact finder, must determine. And in this case, it was a jury. Do you think that the appellate standard for review... Uh, is basically an abuse of discretion standard?
1: Yes, Your Honor. We think that follows from Gasparini. Gasparini says, if we read it correctly, that an appellate court can assess matters of fact only if there's no reasonable disagreement okay. about the facts.
5: Well, if u- it is tra- abuse of discretion. There is still room within that standard, I suppose, to say... Uh, that a jury fact-finder determination on credibility of witnesses is not to be disturbed by the trial judge. And if the trial judge does, it's an abuse of discretion.
1: But this this wasn't simple eyeball credibility. This was, is what the expert is doing here? Does it make sense? He's testifying about projected future profits — where the underlying industry evidence, the only industry evidence produced also by Tri-County, showed that this heat remediation that they were getting into was a declining industry and
6: didn't that the, the, the last interest... Entran- didn't the jury discount his testimony by about 50 percent anyway?
1: The jury discounted his testimony, but the jury still came up with a $4.64 million return and on a $9 was- million
6: dollar investment... Well, I understand. He said it should have been twice that amount, didn't he? He said
1: yes. He said that the he he said 150 percent return per year, or 125 percent return per year. The jury found 49 percent return per year for each of seven years in an industry where the segment of the industry was shrinking and the last entrant who had tried to come in had found it necessary to gain market share to cut prices I below understand. cost
6: no, I thought it was fairly elementary damage law that if you prove the fact of damage and I guess that was proved here that and if the if there isn't a clear measure of damage out there the jury's allowed quite a bit of leeway in figuring the amount of damage and but here they took half the experts within.
1: The question is whether or not the damage assessment is a reasonable one Correct and where Tri-County's own evidence is that the last person who entered failed, it's a shrinking industry, and that prices are being driven down just barely to cover costs, it's
6: not reasonable to prove- But you didn't take the position there was no damage. You no, took the position that you found was exaggerated. The the judge didn't take that position either.
1: The judge took the position that a million dollars of damages, which would have been a 5% return on investment, was about right because there was a... Well, I I assume because there was a differential for for transportation costs. But to project 49% return each of seven years in a declining industry where the last person failed is not a reasonable projection. And the judge said... This is pro forma. It has nothing to do with reality. He said uh, at page J.A. 79, how do you explain this in light of the fact that, that prices are being driven down to costs? How do you explain, he said, in his
6: decision? Well, how did the judge explain the million dollars, other than that was just a further discount? He said, oh, it's a failing industry, I'll discount it more. It seems to me that's all he said.
1: I think what he was finding was, if one looks just at the industry testimony, that is, Dorenzo's testimony, that there was a slight boost for this uh, industry in, in D.C. because transportation costs were slightly better. So one could say that they might be entitled to make a modest return on investment. Five percent per year is a modest return on investment. Forty-nine percent per year for seven years, I'd like to have that kind of 've So what, 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 we've
0: got, what we've got here, uh, Mr. Rush, the question before us is the standard that the Court of Appeals should have applied uh, as opposed to perhaps what, what it did apply, not whether it was right or wrong in this particular case.
2: Right. Uh, but I was about to make the same suggestion, and, and the discussion we're having, it seems to me, demonstrates quite clearly that an appellate court can inquire into this matter just as effectively as the district court.
1: As I read you're, you know, you're making
2: points that are, that are there on the record and in, 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 uh, reflected in the record material.
1: Well, as I read Gasparini, appellate courts are not allowed to weigh evidence. Trial courts are. Appellate
4: courts aren't. Trial courts are allowed only to I'd like to clear the air on, on Gasparini because, frankly, I don't think it has anything to do with this case. I mean, Gasparini concerned New York's attempt to get a handle on excessive damages, and it did it instead of having a substantive cap. It had a procedural way of doing it. Gasparini said New York gave it to a court of appeals. You can't do that in the federal system because courts of appeals can't oversee juries. The only one who can do it is the trial court judge. So Gasparini had to do with the control authority of the trial court judge. It didn't have anything to do with the perspective that the court of appeals was to take vis-a-vis the trial court judge. And it didn't say anything about the difference between, if there is any, between grant or denial. So I did not understand Gasparini uh, to to address this question.
1: No, Gasparini doesn't talk about the difference between grants and denials, but the linchpin of Gasparini, as I read it in terms of assessing facts, is they're quoting Dagnello versus Long Island, whether there has been — there must be an upper limit, and whether that has been surpassed is not a question of fact with respect to which reasonable men may differ, but a question of law. As I read Gasparini, what the court was saying was, and this was about excessive damages, that trial courts can weigh things and examine things, but appellate courts must take the facts as given unless it's beyond the point where reasonable men can disagree. Here, I don't think there's a question, and, and I think that drives us to the standard that we propose, which is whether a reasonable judge could have come to this conclusion. If a reasonable judge couldn't have, then there's room to disagree. Well, there's a
4: difference, too, when we're talking about, no, is, the, is the flaw the excessive damages, or is it some other thing that went wrong so that the wrong person won? here i take it it's the former because the judge said remitter or if you won't take the remitter a new trial and i thought there was a legal standard to govern remitter that is the trial judge is supposed to set it at the maximum amount that a reasonable jury could award on the basis of the evidence presented isn't that isn't that that's the standard?
1: correct that's correct And the judge thought, on the basis of the only competent market evidence, there there could have only been a very modest gain and not the sort of 49% per year gain that the jury awarded, much less the 124% per year gain that the financial expert projected. But the court did say several different things. Two rulings, the ruling on mitigation, which was a ruling that, if the as tri-county testified that they thought there were going to be 2 million dollars a year in profits 2 million a year in profits from this org- from this new entity that they were going to set up is it reasonable for them to do absolutely nothing they didn't respond to a letter inquiring about what their position was they didn't pay a 500 dollar fine which said on its face, if you don't pay this, your license is going to be
0: suspended. They didn't show up at a hearing, and they said, Mr. Mr. Reichel, you're still arguing the merits of this particular ruling and uh, what the Court of Appeals did with it, rather than fitting that into a a standard argument. I mean, I I don't think we're going to decide here whether or not the Court of Appeals properly reversed the T- uh, trial judge's decision. We're going to decide whether it applied the right standard.
1: Yes, I do that in part, Your Honor, to to show what the, what the circuit's test has boiled down to.
0: But if, can
3: you say, as I thought, that the only question that I saw was that the D.C. Circuit wrote one sentence that I thought was a throwaway line, frankly, where it said that there's a more searching inquiry when a judge grants mm-hmm a new trial motion, and where he denies it. Then I thought to myself naively, where he grants a motion, the Court of Appeals has to see if he invaded, say, the credibility province of the jury. And where he denies it, they don't have to do that job. So obviously it has to be more searching. And uh, that stopped right there. All right, now, what's what's the response to that naive argument?
1: The response to that naive argument is the D.C.'s circuit's standard boils down to if there's sufficient evidence to go to the jury, that's the end of the inquiry.
7: But why isn't, why isn't that answer? I have the same question that Justice Breyer does. And why isn't your answer, in effect, another answer of the sort? They got it wrong in applying their standard. I mean, you're, you're saying, you know, what they were really doing was something other than what their verbal formula suggested. And maybe that's so. And maybe, maybe they applied their verbal formula wrongly. But is the formula itself, is the statement of the standard wrong?
1: The standard, as the D.C. Circuit has explicated it, particularly in the Taylor case, which respondents cites at page 26 of its brief explains what the D.C. Circuit understands, and it says that when a trial court sets aside a jury verdict, the appellate court's normal allegiance to the trial court falls away, and its allegiance is to the jury. And that drives them to the point, which they did in this case— of saying if there's enough evidence to go to the jury, that's the end of the inquiry.
7: May may I put my question in a a, a different way? I think it's the same question that that Justice Breyer has been asking. Um, Here are two ways of looking at the problem, and and after I've stated the two ways, I'm going to ask you whether there is anything other than a verbal difference between them. One way of looking uh, at the problem of trying to derive a standard would be this way. There is only one standard for the appellate court to apply, and it's an abuse of discretion standard. When applying an abuse of discretion standard to a denial of a new trial, it's fairly easy because we place great weight in the jury verdict itself. We place great respect in the jury verdict. But when applying the abuse standard uh, to a jury verdict, uh, I'm sorry, to an appellate to a trial court decision, that grants a new trial, that vacates the verdict. We have to look very carefully at the facts and the record for the simple reason that we do have great respect for the jury verdict. In each case, we're applying the same standard, abuse of discretion. But in the two cases, we have to look to different kinds or at least to different degrees of of factual data. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is to say, when a trial court, in effect, denies a new trial, we say, well, abuse of discretion. That's all we look at. But when a trial court grants the new trial, we engage in reviewing it in a more searching inquiry because, in fact, we have great respect for the jury verdict. Is there any difference except a verbal difference between those two ways of looking at what an appellate court does when it reviews a trial court's decision?
1: There has been a difference in application which has driven the appellate courts to ask only was there sufficient evidence to go.
7: Well, is your answer then that the way I've put it, there's nothing but a verbal difference, but the way the courts are applying it they are importing something beyond a verbal difference in the way they are.
1: They are imposing a more stringent standard. In a way, the standard is more stringent anyhow because the great weight of the evidence point is built into it when, when there's a reversal, and it's not built into it when there's a denial. Well,
2: what, is, what is your standard? If, if, if the standard is not was there sufficient evidence to go to the jury, which I assume is the same as saying, could a reasonable jury on the basis of this evidence have found for the plaintiff? If, if that is not the test that the appellate court is supposed to use in deciding whether it was wrongful for the trial court to set aside the jury verdict, then what is the test? You think the trial court can set aside the jury verdict even when a reasonable jury on these facts could have found for the plaintiff in this amount?
1: Yes, Your Honor. That's Hornbook Law. That that when even though there's sufficient evidence to uphold a jury verdict, it can be set aside so long as the trial court thinks it's against the great weight of the evidence. And that goes back to Blackstone, whose test was was a, was the judge reasonably dissatisfied
4: therewith. Our the difference propo- between insufficient evidence, which would be um, used to be J N O V, but now it's. Judgment is a matter of law. Insufficient evidence is J-N-O-B. New trial is something, is more discretion.
1: Precisely, Your Honor. The, The
4: courts of appeals are substituting the matter
1: of law test for the new trial test.
6: And that's exactly You're overlooking what something rather important. It isn't only the weight of the evidence. Sometimes an error of law was committed on either refusing to admit evidence or, or erroneously admitting evidence.
1: And both kinds, yeah. Justice Stevens, were, were committed here. But I do want to point out what the D.C. Circuit did. They seem to agree with the statement on page A7 of our petition. Tri-County responds that it is improper now to assess the relative strength of the party's showings. And then they go on to say... Uh, that it was error for the court to take it away from the jury. This is a directive j- verdict standard. It's the wrong standard. It negates what the trial court is doing. And an appellate, the standard should be whether a reasonable judge could have come to the conclusion that this was contrary to the great weight of the evidence, and we believe that was clearly so here for two reasons. One, because it was un- clearly unreasonable for a company that was going to get $2 million a year to do nothing whatsoever to protect that investment, and because the forecast uh, evidence uh, of financial gain was so out of line with the market evidence that County produced.
7: Then you would be satisfied in this case for us simply to say there is a difference between the JNOV standard and the great weight of the evidence standard.
0: Uh, You can answer that yes or no and then uh, sit down. No. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Reichel. Mr. Emmett.
8: MR. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I find that the standard for granting a new trial uh, was suggested in the Honda Motor versus Oberg case, where um, in situations involving excessiveness of a jury verdict or a verdict against the clear weight of the evidence, uh, could a rational trier of the fact have reached the same conclusion as the jury? If a rational trial of the fact could uh, come to that conclusion, then uh, those traditional common law grounds for granting a new trial simply do not exist.
0: But if a rational trial, or trial of the fact could not have reached that conclusion, it isn't uh, setting aside a jury verdict, J-M-O-L. I mean, if, if, if a rational jury could not reach a, a verdict in favor of the plaintiff, it seems to be the case never should have gone to the jury in the first place.
8: That's correct. It's probably a Rule 50 disposition at that point.
2: So you say there's no difference between JNOV and uh, and uh, setting aside a jury verdict is contrary to the great weight of the evidence. I mean that that's revolutionary, I think.
8: No, I don't think I'm going I'm going to that extent, uh, Your Honor. I, I think though that uh, in situations in which there is a verdict against the clear weight of the evidence or excessive damage you have an element of sympathy or prejudice that has injected the jury verdict, which makes it um, not tied to the specific facts of the case. And for that reason, the trial judge has some some discretion and, of course, can grant a new But
0: by hypothesis there, a rational jury could reach a verdict in favor of the party whom it did. But there are other considerations brought to bear, you know, a great weight of the evidence, you know, improper admission of evidence, things like that that permit the grant of a new trial where it would not have permitted the grant of a motion for judgment notwithstanding the verdict.
8: Uh, there, are, there are situations in which a new trial can be granted, uh, that, and that you're correct, that deal with uh, improper instructions, improper admissions of evidence. Uh, I would agree with that, but to the extent of a verdict being against the clear weight of the evidence, If a rational trier of the fact could come to the same conclusion as that jury, then I don't think it should be set aside by a trial judge.
7: Okay, but you also accept the distinction that there is a distinction between whether uh, an issue of damages can go to the jury, i.e., is there enough evidence to get it to the jury? And on the other hand, the question, uh, whether the jury's verdict of damages should be set aside as against the great weight of the evidence because it's excessive. Yes,
8: I do yeah. see a distinction. Okay, well. If you do
2: accept that distinction, then what is your criterion for whether it ever gets to the jury or not? I assume it is something different, as you've just said, from the criterion of whether after the jury verdict the judge can de- declare a new trial. I think and could. I assume it is not, therefore, whether a rational jury on the basis of this evidence could reach that result, which is your standard for, for new trial. Uh, so what is your standard for JNOV, then?
8: Well, certainly the JNOV is, is phrased in, in the light most favorable to the party that uh, is seeking or that the uh, judgment is being sought against. Yeah, but isn't
2: this at the distinction, that for JNOV, you do not have to view all the evidence in the light most favorable to the plaintiff? That uh, I, I'm sorry, for a, uh, for, for a new trial, you don't have to regard all the evidence in the light most favorable to the plaintiff. You're, you're allowed to uh, sit back and evaluate it uh, impartially.
8: Um, I think that... Uh,
2: that would be a distinction.
8: That would be, and I think the rules under Rule 50 uh, do talk in terms of phrasing it. Or phrase it more in terms of, in a light more favorable f- to the plaintiff,
0: but or to the. Got, what we've got here, Mr. Uh, some fu- fundamentals uh, first, and that is a, a refusal of the trial judge to let the case go to the jury on the, a directed verdict against the plaintiff, and a judgment as a matter of law, or, or uh, call it that, or. Uh, granting a motion for a judgment as a matter of law after the jury returns a verdict is the rational basis standard. That is, no rational jury could have reached the verdict that this jury did. And that is not involved here, I take it. What we're talking about is the grant of a a new trial by the trial judge. And uh, by hypothesis, a rational jury could have reached a verdict, but still have it set aside because it's against the great weight of the evidence. And the standard now we're talking, we want to find out, when the trial judge grants a motion for a new trial that way, what standard should the Court of Appeals apply?
8: Well I, I think the Court has to decide whether there is a, a conflict in the in the evidence. Could could a jury reasonably have reached the conclusion based upon the evidence that it did? And unless um, I, would, I would point out this also. But
0: you're, you're just, you, uh, when you start talking about could a reasonable jury have reached this result, you're back to the judgment NOV or judgment MOL, as they call it now, rather than weight of the evidence.
8: I, I think that that's the only way I can explain how a trial judge should look at the, at the evidence in terms of whether or not a new trial should be granted. I would suggest it's, it's certainly not the standard that the District of Columbia Uh, suggests that a trial judge has unlimited discretion to grant a new trial as long as his view of the evidence is reasonable. What
1: should
8: be the standard? Uh, I I, I think it should be the standard that was uh, referred to in the Honda versus Oberg case. Could a rational trier of fact reach the same conclusion as the jury?
3: But is it right in Miller's? I mean, This is a subject I can only remember. It was in my first year of law school. And all I remember from that is they said it's certainly different. I, do, I might not even remember that right. I, I thought it was absolutely different, and I, everything's changed since then anyway. So what do Wright and Miller and the people who write about this say is the standard for giving a new trial as opposed to a standard for giving a directed verdict?
8: Well, I don't, I don't see him distinguishing them. Uh, I think that a number of the uh, Circuit uh, Court of Appeals cases Talking terms of whether on a great weight of the evidence, uh, there was. A right, right. They use the
3: words "great weight" weight of the evidence. What does Wright Miller say? What do the writers? This is a rather basic question. I think that there must be. Uh, I can go look it up myself, but I will too. But.
8: No, there's there's <laughs> there's certainly some discretion, Your Honor. But at, at the same time, at no point in this opinion from the district court does it ever say that this. Jury verdict is being set aside because it was against the great weight of the evidence. That is a term that is foreign to this district court opinion. And uh, the only grounds that he is, that is asserted by the district court judge is excessiveness on one point of view. He does not rely on the traditional, um, this is against the great weight of the evidence. To, so, I mean, well,
4: that's perfectly appropriate. That's what the whole remittator thing is about, if the judge thinks that the verdict is excessive. The judge can say, plaintiff, you either take a reduction or I'm going to order a new trial. And that is quite distinct from, was there sufficient evidence to go to the jury?
8: That's correct, except in this particular situation, we know that it was not an excessive verdict. We knew that from the evidence that was presented of approximately $12 million, that a rational uh, trier of the fact could have brought back a verdict anywhere up to that you amount. Go,
4: you're going back again to the sufficiency. And Rule 50 would never, if these two standards were so close, put the dis- put on the district court the the very difficult chore of having to say now, if I reject the, is- the judgment AS A MATTER OF LAW, I HAVE TO RULE ALTERNATIVELY, OR IF I GRANT THE MOTION FOR JUDGMENT AS A MATTER OF LAW, I HAVE TO RULE ALTERNATIVELY ON THE NEW TRIAL MOTION SO THAT MAKING A DISTRICT JUDGE DO THAT WOULD BE CRUEL AND UNUSUAL PUNISHMENT IF THESE WEREN'T DISCRETE INQUIRIES.
8: WELL, EXCEPT THAT A TRIAL JUDGE must be limited, I think, by the evidence to some extent when he rules on whether or not a verdict is excessive. Otherwise, he can call whatever verdict he wants in uh, term it excessive, thereby nullifying a valid jury. Uh, there has to be some basis other than uh, the judge's characterization. Did of- this
5: trial judge decide that he'd made an error in excluding evidence? At trial, and therefore wanted to correct that error somehow.
8: He did, Your Honor. But the the problem with that analysis was there was no uh, proffer by the District of Columbia to show how the health and safety of this project could ever result in a revocation of the of the permit. The the District of Columbia came into this trial with the expectation
5: But at least the trial judge's ruling may have been based on his notion that he'd made a mistake by excluding certain evidence that the defendants offered.
8: That's correct, except, though, that that conclusion was not supported by the evidence.
0: Okay. Well, you've shown us why you think the trial judge's ruling was improper, but we're not the Court of Appeals. What standard should the Court of Appeals have decided when it heard your argument?
8: Well, I think it should have applied um, an abuse of discretion standard. Uh, The the problem that I have with this entire more searching inquiry, Your Honor, is uh, the D.C. Circuit has been using it for 30 years. And at no point in, in that course of time do they ever say, we are applying it. Uh, that's changing the standard of review to a stricter abuse of discretion.
0: Uh, well, certainly the term "more searching inquiry" suggests they're going to be a little more demanding uh, or uh, uh, more willing to reverse the grant of a new trial than they will the denial of a new trial. That's correct. And is is there anything wrong with that point well, of view?
8: I, I don't see it. Any it
0: helped you here.
8: It's, I'm not sure it changed the standard of review. The, the, uh, the well, review was still abuse of discretion.
0: Yeah, well, it, but as pointed out by some of my colleagues, abuse of discretion, but, uh, uh, being more willing to reverse the grant of a new trial under some circumstances than the denial of a new trial.
8: I don't think they actually say they're more willing to reverse. Well, then, but
0: then, certainly, what does a more searching inquiry mean then?
8: Well, I, I think it's a rec- simple recognition that we're dealing with a jury reaching a certain determination and a judge disagreeing uh, and granting a new trial. That is
7: to say, there are just more things in the record to
8: review. I think it just is just an indication they're being a little more careful, Your Honor. I don't. I don't think it really substantively changed the uh, analysis of the case. Uh, they they said on three occasions they reviewed for abuse of discretion, nothing more. And if, if they intended more searching inquiry to mean stricter abuse of discretion, they would have said it, but they never. They
0: Why do you think they said more searching inquiry then? Well, because I think. Uh, what does more searching inquiry mean?
8: Uh, they They don't define that. <laughs>
0: And but but it, you can always go to a dictionary and figure out for yourself what it means.
8: I understand, and it, it certainly means, uh, at the very least, a more close look at the
0: at the evidence. But let's it, take a more close look rather than more searching inquiry. It, it, it both mean pretty much the same thing, and it means a greater willingness to reverse in the case of a grant of a new trial than denial of a new trial.
8: I, I, no, I disagree with that. I think you're making a jump in terms of, of uh, an outcome that is suggested by that standard that is not, not accurate. Um, I think it just it says we're going to look at it. We're not favoring the plaintiff. We're not looking at favoring the defendant. We're just going to look at what happened more closely.
0: Well, you don't have to favor a plaintiff or a defendant in that sort of an equation. You, you favor the person who uh, uh, got the jury verdict.
8: Well, I don't think it, it favors either the, the jury verdict or the district court.
2: Sure, it does. If, if you're going to conduct a more search look at the plaintiff, the, the plaintiff had the judgment. Any inquiry uh, regarding the setting aside of that judgment, which is going to be more searching, is going to make it more likely that that setting aside will will be held to be improper. So it will inevitably favor the, the, the plaintiff whose, whose jury verdict has been set aside.
8: Or a defendant. I mean, it, it's not always Yeah, okay.
2: Whichever, whichever, whichever. In, in the case of a remittitur, it's always going to be the plaintiff. But,
8: uh, yes, but it's still true that even though
6: it's more searching than the converse, it still has to be an abuse of discretion. And the abuse of discretion standard itself tends to protect the trial judge from reversal.
8: And abuse of discretion is a deferential standard. I, I would agree, but at the same
5: time, do you support the Court of Appeals' decision or do you not? I can't tell from what you say. Oh I do, Your Honor. I, I thought you won, and I thought you were here saying yes, yes. they got it right. I, but you're not saying that apparently. No, I, I, am, I simply do not understand your argument.
8: I am saying that they did uh,
5: did they get it right?
8: They got it right
5: And they said they applied a more searching inquiry. Was yes, that right?
8: That's correct.
5: So they did do that. And that's okay. That's okay. All right.
8: But my other, my other point, too, is just looking under if this verbal formulation was omitted from the opinion, it would still be the correct result. It was still an abuse of discretion um, by the trial court.
0: But if the Court of Appeals had not applied that, term, maybe it would not have been, in your view, the correct result. Maybe, maybe, maybe they would have affirmed the trial court.
8: Well, I, uh, I you're, think
0: you're saying that you don't mind if we
7: remand this for determination under an abuse of discretion standard. Does not make any difference?
8: I think it's already I think it's already been reviewed under an abuse of discretion standard. But I would secondly say that this court affirms judgments, not opinions, and that uh, even if this court were to find that a stricter abuse of discretion standard was applied. Uh, the result is still the same. The district court abused
4: its discretion. So we should dismiss the re- as improvidently granted. Well, you'd be happy with that, right? Yes, Your Honor. Nothing turns on it. But there is one feature of this. We go back for the Seventh Amendment to how things were at common law. And at common law, as I understand it, the appellate bench had no role at all in any of this. That it was. The trial court, it could be the full court at Westminster. But here is kind of a, an irony that that the appellate court, that shouldn't have been in it at all, is exercising muscle vis a vis the trial court that at common law had the only word on whether there'd be a new trial.
8: Well, I, I don't think that um, this is completely. Um, out of the range of appellate review. If but,
4: but why, if you were adhering to the um, the model at the time that the nation was formed, why wouldn't you say the appellate court, you, whatever roles there are in this, yours has got to be minimal because you didn't even have a say at common law?
8: Well, I think you, you had a say to the extent if an error of law was committed, that could always be appealed, but at the same time, at the same time, the modern courts have allowed, um, if the judge makes an error, to have that, that uh, decision set aside in a new trial or the original jury. verdict. the discretion
4: on setting aside a verdict as against the weight of the evidence was entirely, as I understand it, in the hands of the trial bench. Just not any errors of law made, no errors in the charge, no errors, no reversible errors in the admission of evidence. But against the weight of the evidence was trial court business and not appellate business.
8: Well, I, I guess that depends on whether the on the bond court was was looked on as operating in appellate uh, capacity and reviewing the, the facts. Well, Mr.
2: Emig, Mr. You, you didn't. Give us any assistance by discussing that that common law in in your brief, but but I I have scratched around and I I think there was a distinct. You know, I dissented in Gasparini because I thought that there was no review at common law, but what the situation, as I understand it, was, was that there was no review when the district judge, when the trial judge refused to set aside the trial, but that that there was review in the situation we have here when the trial judge did set aside. There are several cases in, in, which, in which the uh, 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 appellate court uh, looked into whether that was proper or not. So I'm, you know, I'm, now where does that leave me? If I thought we were wrong in Gasparini, and there were several on this court who joined me in, uh, in allowing appellate review at all, we allowed this appellate review there on, on the basis of abuse of discretion, I guess to be consistent, we should have an even stricter standard when uh, when there's review in the situation where the jury verdict is ignored. So I guess it should be something beyond abuse of discretion, or should, well, I don't know.
8: Well, I my, my position in this, Your Honor, is that it was not um, set aside, the jury verdict, because it was against the great weight of the evidence, um, that There was no evidence in this case of damages.
3: You you want to re-argue your case. Now, why don't you take it as an assumption that if you lose on this issue, it's going to go right back to the D.C. Circuit if you lose on the issue that's in front of us, which is not the issue that either of you apparently wants to argue. And that's, that's the issue about whether, it says, did Gasparini make unlawful the throwaway line that the D.C. Circuit threw in. And maybe we shouldn't be hearing that, but we're hearing it. And so my my question concerns that. And I've looked at Wright and Miller, and as I look at their standards for new trial, it strikes me that I understand very well your uncertainty, because what it says is there are all kinds of verbal formulations all over the place. And you say the D.C. Circuit has adjusted to this over 30 years, And I suspect other circuits have adjusted over similar periods of time to different verbal formulations. And if we start fooling around with those, in this case, there is no matter so close to the heart of the trial bar. And suddenly we will discover different circuits doing different things in light of what we say. So if we say you're right on these words searching inquiry, some other circuit is going to take that as a signal that they are wrong. And therefore, if we allow the D.C. Circuit to do what it did for 30 years, some other circuit will be unable to do what it has done for 30 years. So what do we do?
8: I I think the one thing that can be done is simply to look at the the opinion itself from the district court granting the new trial. And um, if you feel only an abuse of discretion standard, is applicable and should not be applied more strictly, does that opinion in and of itself constitute an abuse of discretion?
3: You want me to go back and look at the facts here in your case, which I do not intend to do. So ruling that out, what do I
4: do?
8: Then I I think in that situation, um, my position is it's entirely unclear in terms of what they meant and how it was applied.
4: But I thought one of your arguments in answer to the petitioner was Petitioner, you knew all along that the D.C. Circuit is applying a stricter standard uh, when it's reviewing grants than when it reviews denial. You knew it, and you didn't tell the D.C. Circuit when you were before that court, so it's too late. If you you knew that that they were going to apply a stricter standard to grants than denials, you should have told them D.C. Circuit, don't do what you're doing for 30 years. You didn't tell them that, so you effectively forfeited the point. You made that argument in your brief to us. I did. So, so you must think that this was a standard that had some bite to it.
8: I think when we when we uh, included it in our brief, we were we were simply asking the court to pay close attention to the to the facts of the case. Um, if if D.C. thought that that entailed a stricter Abuse of discretion review that should have been brought up at that point, and it could have been resolved one way or the other by the court of appeals. Um, but they they had their opportunity, and and all of a sudden it becomes a problem now um, when the decision comes, and and there is this verbal formulation of a more searching inquiry. But the um, the, the fact of the matter is, the D.C. Circuit um, only says abuse of discretion. And I think that under those circumstances, uh, that was the correct uh, uh, standard to apply and that they were certainly entitled to review uh, the record more carefully because a jury verdict had been set aside.
0: Thank you, Mr. Emmick. Now, the case is submitted.